You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Emma Heath and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. All right, well, welcome everyone to today's podcast, um, talking about diversity in the NHS. Um, So if we want to start with Richard, if you just want to kick things off. Good evening, everybody. Uh, My name's Richard Gurney and I'm the Head of Digital Change at Leeds and York Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. Um, We're the uh, Learned Disability and Mental Health Provider for Leeds. Um, and York, uh, bits of York anyway. And um, my role is to lead a group of uh, clinicians, admin and training professionals who implement new digital innovations. So my background is occupational therapy uh, and we've got nurses um, in the tr- in the team as well. Um, and we've recently been focusing on the um, relaunch of our electronic patient record and uh, electronic prescribing and medication administration systems. But our, our remit is much wider than that. We cover any digital system that our frontline clinicians touch, basically. Um, yeah, that's me. Thank you, Richard. And then Martin, do you want to go next? Good evening, everybody. My name is Martin Scott. I'm the ICT service delivery manager working for the Yorkshire Ambulance Service. So I look after the service line function and also the field engineers. So that's any uh, desktop devices, laptops, base units, also the um, rugged devices in the ambulances, which are currently at GTAX. Also, we've now taken on doing the mobile phone activity. We have a lot of interaction with anybody and everybody in YAS from a new start up to the the longest serving member of staff, from the chief executive to anybody else, which is good, gives a wide range of people to deal with. Part of that, we deal a lot with people who uh, need adaptive software, adaptive hardware. So very interested in that and uh, pleased to be a part of this tonight. Thanks, Martin. And then Gail. My name is Gail Johnston and I'm a programme manager and I work for Tees Esquia Valley Foundation Trust, which is a another mental health, learned disabilities and autism provider covering the Tees area, North Yorkshire and the Durham area. My role is to programme manage the clinical journey. So the trust's going through a transformation change process and I'm working closely with the chief strategic officer around transforming our overall clinical experience for our patients and co-producing it with those who've got lived experience. I'm a social worker by background, but I've got a long, a lot of experience in operational management and also project and program management, so quite a varied background. Um, so you've all sent over some really good questions. So again, we'll just start background where we were. Um, and then again, uh, what I'll do is I'll pose the question back to whoever's question it is first. And then if you could give us a little bit more insight into your question and then we'll go around and just do the answers. Um, so Richard, we'll start off with you again. Um, so your question was, in an NHS with increasing demands on digital literacy, how do we support current and future staff who struggle with digital skills? Yeah, so... In my role as head of digital change, um, I come across a lot of staff. I, I, I pretty much reached out to every clinical team in the trust when we were going live with our new electronic patient record. And what I came across increasingly was people who said, oh, I don't really like computers. I don't like digital. Why well, can't I go back to paper record? Everything was so much better in the past. Um, as you would expect, um, when you do any 
big change project, people don't necessarily like it. Um, there was also a lot of positivity and a lot of uh, you know potential seen in the program. I guess what came through to me more and more was the increasing reliance we have on digital. Because when you're focused on one program like an electronic patient record, um, you tend to just see that and you don't see everything else. Um, and what occurred to me more and more was that literally everything we do is digital now, pretty much. So right down to our payslips are digital, uh, our leave requests, uh, the rotors are all digital. Uh, we prescribe on a digital system. We write all our notes on a digital system. We report from a digital system. We All our policies and procedures are on a digital system. And it's increasingly difficult to get by if you're not digitally literate to a certain degree. Um, I think it's really easy to fall into um, stereotypes around who might be digitally literate and who might not be. And this is something that my team have really been looking into because it's not necessarily the older workforce that struggle with things like our electronic patient record, which is the stereotype. It's often the, the younger end of the workforce. Um, and it's not just people who are maybe not native English speakers that struggle with the language included in the programs. It, it's people from all over the trust, all over kind of ethnic backgrounds, uh, language backgrounds, professional backgrounds. Um, and the thing that really surprised me was how many people who were really literate with phones, iPads, Android devices really struggle to use desktop computers because it's just not in their lexicon anymore. They, they don't use them at university, they don't use them at school, they use tablet devices and phones. So what we want to encourage in our workforce are people who are caring and compassionate and skilled um, and carry that through to our patients and service users who have a good experience with us. What we tend to increasingly focus on is people who can type into an electronic patient record. And my question is really, how do we balance out those competing priorities of accurate data input with good frontline clinical care? Thank you for explaining that a bit more, Richard. I can see both of you kind of nodding your head along there. Um, Martin, what, what are your thoughts on, on that? Picking up on one thing that Richard said about it not being age specific, I think that's uh, very, very pertinent. Um, people always assume it's the older generation, it's not. And the challenge here is a lot of young people may not want to say anything because they feel they just come from university, they just come from school, and everyone, their friends know how to do it, they know, the family know how to use it. So they may be more reluctant now to say something, which can be the challenge there, which is actually getting everybody in an environment where they're comfortable to actually say and bring that information to people. Because if people don't say anything, you can't do anything about it. So you have to know. So people have to have that trust that it's been done for the right reason, you want to help them, you want to move it forward. That's the key thing. Once you've got that, once you understand the size and scale of what you're dealing with, what you actually need, and then you can actually work out what, well, how do we move it forward? How can we actually help this? How can we help that? Because if, if one person is having it, you can guarantee someone else will have the same thing, and then my number saying it either. So once you've got that, you can then actually look and say, okay, this is what we can do. It's getting everybody involved in it. You, do, you don't want to have part of the audience not included, or it doesn't relate. It doesn't relate to me. It relates to everybody. And the, if you do that, the, the, the people you exclude by default by that they have some really good idea which benefits everybody so they are part of what needs to be looked at but they're also part of the solution as well so it's just making sure you get all the information from everybody and everyone feels fully involved thank you martin and then gail have you got any thoughts 
Yes, I've done a lot of research on this. It's an area I hadn't really considered because when I think of equality and diversity, I think of the Equality Act and the protected characteristics within it. So digital literacies is something I've never considered. So obviously when I went off and did some research, I found it's a it's a massive area. Um, what I deduced from it, I've learned, is that it's actually a form of in inequality in itself, which I didn't realise. And it's linked to um, social deprivation as well. I didn't, I, it's, again, it's, it's a lot of learning for me. I just, there's a, there's a lot of assumptions out there and you're right, most people assume the older generation can't use a computer and the younger generation are better at it. I think for those of us who've been using computers for the past 20 years, I think many of us did something like CLATE or ECDL training many years ago. So we're familiar with Word and Excel and PowerPoint, Windows Explorer, um, saving files, you know, all those kind of like basic things. We're all very au fait with it. But I think actually the younger generation will probably don't undertake any kind of CLATE training. So this sort of thing is very new to them and, and how to navigate like shared drives, that sort of thing. Um, so in terms of solutions, I think it's about training and I, and I don't think it's just about using shared drives. I think it's also about MS Teams. The trust, I've just changed trust. So I've, I came from um, Cumbria, Northumberland, China, Weir, and I've moved to um, TSS Weir Valley. But what I noticed in CNEW is there was a lot of training on using Teams and on SharePoint, because I think that's the next big challenge as well. There's a lot of staff out there that are really struggling with SharePoint. Um, so I think it's really key that training is put in place by the organisation and that there's something like um, self-assessment diagnostic tools so people can, you know, self-assess themselves to see where they're at in terms of the IT literacy. I mean, this is all about existing staff, obviously, because I know your question also related to potential staff. I think that's that's more challenging for the for new recruits, one thing I did learn is that, as you're saying about smartphones, a lot of people are using smartphones and tablets, so they don't have a laptop or a desktop. And one barrier is NHS jobs, the application form. And I've, I've, I've heard that some people that cannot fill out the form using a tablet, it's meant to be very difficult. Now, I would use my laptop. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use a, a tablet, but it, it sounds like a lot of people are doing that, especially newly qualified. All I could offer as a solution to that is I started off in local authorities being a social worker and I, and I know that libraries offer free computer services. So my suggestion to that would be that for potential new recruits that we need to signpost them to computers that are free to use so that they can get onto a desktop and fill out an application form because we're not going to go backwards. We're not going to give up technology. It's If anything, it's going to get accelerated. So it's not, I know some clinicians want to go back to the, you know, the hark back to paper-based records, but that, that, that ain't going to happen. Thank you, Gail. It's great to see that you did a little bit of research there as well. <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, Martin, you got your hand up. Do you want to add something? Yeah, just building on what Gail said about uh, training be the key thing here. I think the other thing to mention with that is one size doesn't fit all. So yeah. because of the because of the wide range of ages in in the organisation and the skill set in the organisation, some people might like to read a book, do that. Some people might have a physical course. Some people might like bite-sized chunks. So we've actually started doing some uh, basically small 
video training videos so rather than a long ones you know just and that way people can pick and choose what's also allowing us to do then is we can send these out so if somebody rings to the help desk and that's a question on the service desk we could actually send them a link out to that short five minute podcast element so i think it's making sure that people like different things a lot of people in ict for example don't like formal ict people as a rule like to pick something up and play with it that's uh, their last port of call is actually look at us some training material that's an ict thing it depends so i think you need to make sure we look at all of the different potential options of training and make sure there's a cross selection thanks martin gail i was just going to add about champions as well and i don't say this so much in the nhs but when i was in um local authority social services many years ago you would have floor walkers champions within teams and I really think this is overlooked nowadays. It's really important to have dedicated champions within teams that people can go to and ask for advice. How do I do this? How do I do that? Thanks, Gail. Richard? Yeah, thanks. I think, thank you so much, both of you, for your contributions. I think, I think that was really great. Um, we went live with our new electronic patient record um, in March 2020, at the end of March, just as the world locked down. Um, we were at a point where we couldn't really go back, so we just forced forward. And originally, we planned to have uh, about 60 floor walkers across our sites, and we couldn't have any in the end. So we switched to a virtual model kind of from day one. And I, and I think it is something we really missed. I think, Martin, your point about different um, different media for training is really important. Um, I manage the training team for our digital solutions, and we do try and offer as many different varieties as possible. But because of the COVID restrictions, that's been really difficult. And it's something we've really missed, uh, having a classroom where we can go and train people. Um, but I just wanted to thank you both for your contributions. I think that was really great. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. Um, so we'll move on to the next question then. So Martin, we'll go to your question. Um, so yours was, how can leaders and managers increase the number of applicants from Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities and then recruit, retain and support staff? Yeah, so... A challenge we have, or society as a whole, is a uh, melting pot of different race, religion, groups, which is great. What we have to find is, in particular some functions, you get one particular group of people, be it white European, be it whatever, applying for that particular role. You can only interview the people that apply for the role. You can only point from the people you interview. So this goes back to how do you get more people initially wanting to apply for that role? How do you make it more attractive to that group? Because having a mix of people in a role is better for the organisation. It reflects society as a whole, and all the different groups can bring things into it. So that's actually beneficial to everybody. So how do we get from the word go, get more people to want to apply for that to actually, so they can interview them? And then how do you actually make them feel welcome when they do arrive, that they want to stay here and help shape going forward? Thank you, Martin. Um, Gail, have you got any thoughts on that? So I guess it's about proactively engaging with people from the um, fame community. Um, so it's about reaching out and going into um, different um, communities, mosques, etc., and engaging. It's use of networks as well. I suppose whether you've got, have you got a um, a big network in your trust? We have, yes. And it's whether people within the network can link into other networks, because I guess it's 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 better to have somebody who's representative of a particular faith um, 
and race to actually be the spokesperson who's who's actually engaging with others um it's it's a it's a tricky one though because like you say the barrier is around the application process has to be transparent at the same time but i suppose it is about reaching out and engaging with people within certain communities about going to them rather than waiting for the applicants to apply thank you gail um richard have you got any thoughts I think it's such an important question. Um, working in mental health, when we go to people's houses and we ask them deeply personal questions about problems they're having that they can't necessarily describe themselves, let alone explain someone from a different cultural background. And I think having people who look and sound like you and understand your background is vital to aid recovery, really. I think it's something we all struggle with. Um, the NHS is a very slow moving beast and it's really hard for us to change the way we recruit. Um, I think what things that Gail and Martin said are absolutely spot on, um, reaching out to local communities, taking part in interventions. So our vaccine rollout program for COVID, for instance, reached out into communities. We took the big vaccine bus into areas with low take up of the vaccine. But while we were there, we were representing the trust. So, you know, we, we were talking about how we interact with people, people come to say, oh, how, you know, what we, what do you do? What do you do when you're not doing this? And it's starting those conversations. Um, and I think that's how you break down some of those barriers. Um, it's interesting because we just talked, didn't we, about how it's really hard to apply for a job on a tablet. Um, it's really hard to apply for a job if English isn't your first language. And then, and if it's trickier on a tablet anyway, then it gets harder and harder, doesn't it? Um, so I think the more we can open up, the better. We did try something a few years ago um, where we basically just had an open recruitment event and people could just wander in off the street and we'd, you know, ask them what they're interested in, what the qualifications were and try and match them to roles. Um, I think that had a varying level of success, really. Um, and I suspect, again, we ended up with predominantly white middle class kind of take up because uh, you need a certain level of, of um, language skill and also confidence to be able to walk into that arena. But um, I think that was a start in the right direction. Um, I do think it's a real challenge. And I think when people are in post, um, I guess a, a lot of trust, we certainly, we have a network as well. Um, we, we're really strict as, as we should be on any kind of discrimination and really clamp down on it fast. Um, I think we also have a, a lot of education about um, different cultures, different ways of, of living your life. Um, and so we try and encourage people to learn about each other um, within as a staff group. And I think that does uh, increase diversity, but it's absolutely a massive challenge and we certainly haven't fixed it. Thank you, Richard. Some really good points then from you all. Um, anybody else want to add anything, anything else to that? No, so they're both good points uh, raised by Gail and Richard there. I think what we, one thing we are trying to do is we're actually trying to look at the application process and see if we have more information to that. So when we push like on, on NHS jobs, see if we can actually possibly have a small video there or guidance. Just to, we're trying to make it look less intimidating to people because it could be you know, that the form itself might be too complicated or not. We don't want to exclude people who could be good candidates for the roles. I think historically some roles are seen as a male or a female role as well, which again is counterproductive because the world as a whole is male and female, so roles should be male and female. So I think we need to also link to this, breaking down the stereotypes. 
Perfect. Thank you, Martin. Um, I hope that kind of discussion helped um, answer some questions for you. And Richard, have you got anything else you want to add to that? Sorry, jumping in right at the last minute there. <laughs> um, the, the other thing uh, that I think is really important is that we work with universities and, and kind of feeder environments of so schools at universities to try and really promote the roles that we do. And I think what we tend to do is go to the universities and speak to the people who are doing the course that we already do. So by then it's too late, isn't it? Because they're already on the course. I think what we've tried to do is reach into courses that are kind of allied. So I'm an occupational therapist, but you know, spending some time in the student union, spending time with people doing English, for instance, or you know, whatever course you can get into and just saying, hey, occupational therapy is a great career, nursing is a great career. Why don't you come speak to us about it? So that we don't just speak to our own crowd all the time. I think that's really important. Thank you, Richard. And anybody else? Any final calls? Anyone want to say anything else? No? All good. Perfect. All right, we'll move on to the final question then. Um, so, Gail, it's your question. So, um, how can leaders and managers recruit, retain and support staff with a disability to flourish in the NHS? So, I guess I asked this question because this is something that's close to my heart. I have a health condition that's a disability. I am also mixed race and I'm a woman, so I meet the whole diversity in terms of um, my sex and my race. But for me, disability is more important. And I often feel it's, and, and others have said this, I'm part of the disability network, that it's the correlation of the Equality Act. It's often overlooked. It's the only area as well where there's a legal duty on the employer, whereas the other protected characteristics don't have that around reasonable adjustments, etc. So for me, it's something really important. Um, and I, I, I often, well, from my last trust and the trust I'm in now, I've had quite a good experience of having reasonable adjustments, etc., in place for me, but I'm very vocal and, and I also know my rights. So I just wondered what your thoughts were in relation to disability and how you can get the best out of staff and would-be staff. Thank you, Gail. Um, Richard, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, I, I think this was a great question. Um, I, I'm registered blind. And uh, so the, when I saw this question pop up, I was like, oh, that's such a great thing to talk about. Um, so similarly to you, Gail, actually, I've always had positive experiences um, in terms of, of kind of the basics. So, you know, getting getting some adaptive equipment in place, um, access to work programmes, all those kind of elements, always been really positive. Um, I think part of the challenge is, as a clinician with a disability is deciding how much you disclose and how much you don't to services you're working with. And, and I, I feel that's very much an individual decision at times. Um, I suppose one of, the, one of the areas that I've been focusing on over the last couple of years is that what we tend to do as an NHS provider is, is follow the, the kind of the well-trodden path of what people, what equipment people need really. And we're not generally very holistic when we do that. So, when when you you know when I've been to access to work, every time every time I started a new job, they said the same thing. Oh, you need a big screen, uh, a PC with a screen reader on, and a Zoom text, which you know was a magnifier, screen magnifier, and and that's great, and it does the job, and I'm not complaining about that. What no one's ever asked me is what do you use at home, because we set our home environments up in the way that suit us the best. So working from home has been a complete revelation to me, because all of a sudden. I have no problem reading the material that's put on a presentation, whereas before I couldn't see it at all. I was kind of just guessing my way through. Um, and it's completely changed the way I work. So it's become a question I ask all the time now. 
um, you know, you've got this equipment that's working for you, that's great. But what do you use at home? You know, do you use a Mac at home? Do you use an iPhone? What what makes you what makes life easy for you at home? Do you have everything in a certain place? So would it actually help you to have your own desk, your own chair, all that kind of stuff? Um, so I think because disability is such um, a varied experience for people who, who are going through and experiencing it, the only real experts are themselves. And so for me, I'm a fairly eloquent guy most of the time. And so I can explain really clearly what I want and what I need. I'm not necessarily going to get it, but I can explain what I need. I think that's always the starting place. And the things we need to be really careful of is that some disabilities um, hinder people being able to communicate that really clearly to us. So just to have that awareness that the disability itself may stop you from being able to communicate what you need, but also the um, a mindset of, well, I've got this stuff already, so I can't have any more or I should just battle through this because, you know, I'm no better than anyone else. I think they need to be challenged. So I, I just think using the expertise of the person is key in this always. Thanks, Richard. And thanks, Gail, as well, both of you for kind of sharing some more personal aspects. I think it definitely adds a, an extra dimension onto the discussion. Um, Martin, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it is a very good question. Uh, Part of the thing about disability is it's not always something which is obvious that people can see. So if, if someone has a missing arm or is in a wheelchair, that's obviously people that are oh, disabled. But disability is someone like dyslexia is a good example now. We're getting increasing people who are saying they've got a problem with dyslexia and you've got to look into that. That can influence how they come across, what they can say. So that is an invisible disability, but one which can materially impact on that person, how they work, how they come across. It can also, as Commander Richard said, make it harder for them to ask what they want. So it's understanding, getting people, back to what I said earlier, is getting people to understand it's completely fine to have a disability. That's not a problem. We want to work with the people because back to society as a whole, society has people with disability of every different kind so in getting it all into this. And there are things you can do. So people with dyslexia, you can look at Dragon software, you can read, write, you can, things you can do for that. Richard's point about these people at home work around it. It's a great point is that because if it, what, what they do at home, can we move it to work in some way? And if it works for one person, then would it work for somebody else? So you can start to build up a framework, but, but, but obviously on the thing that one side doesn't fit all, we're not saying if you've got that particular thing, that's what you have. If you've got that thing, that's what you have. But that's a starter for 10. There's looking and saying, okay, what do you need? So what I've got in my area, one of my engineers is my uh, expert on this. So anything any, any to do with adaptive software and hardware, we go to him for. So he looks at and he looks at he, he looks at the entire market. He talks to the government as well for that government department, find what to do for that. But he also feeds back to the other engineers because what we don't want to do is make sure you just silent one person. You know, you can report an issue, but only when that person's there. No, because someone might have a disability they need to do something with when he's on holiday. So I think it's looking at all of it and seeing what we can do. But that's a great point that we should about talking to people at home and finding what they do. The other thing as well is also to get rid of this stigma. Some people, particularly the younger people, might not want to say, I've got a disability, this is a problem for me. Because, you know, again, it's the, the peer pressure on them, how it looks. If it's not visible, they might not want to say something. And the managers might just think, why are they performing how they should do? That person, they're more likely to think, I'll go somewhere else. And that's, that is a loss to the organisation and to the individual as well. So the, getting rid of the stigma is a big starting point for that. Make everyone think when they join in originally, this organisation is 
receptive to that. This organization will look at what I can do. And that also helps the organization. It, it gives more skills into it. Otherwise, what you're doing is limiting the potential people who will work for you to the white European age range. You, 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 you want to avoid that. You want to make it everybody can apply for it. Thank you, Martin, for that. Um, does anybody else want to have anything else to say on that one? Yeah, I was just going to add, um, it's exactly as Richard said, it's about everyone's an individual and what works for me might not work for another person. So it's really important to treat disabled employees as individuals. And going back to Martin's point just now, it's yeah, it's about it's about embrace and difference. And it's 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 very much I guess it's about having supportive line management having a really inclusive collaborative culture and a lot of disabilities are um they're hidden and there's a lot of myths people think as well oh I better not declare it because I might get sacked when in actual fact <laughs> the legislation is very much in their favour they can't be dismissed for having disability so there's a lot of myths around it and like you say it's around it's seen as stigma when it's, it's actually a positive yeah thank you Gail Richard yeah I just think I just wanted to say that I think this has been such a great conversation that people have felt, you know, three strangers have felt able to communicate so openly about disability in this way. Um, and I would also just like to reiterate again that I've always had a great experience. And that is, as well as um, kind of through the kind of operational side of things, um, I think being open with my colleagues as well. From day one, really, you know, starting in Leeds eight years ago, coming from a different trust, different part of the, the country, and just saying to people, listen, I'm, I'm partially sighted. Um, I might ask you for this and this and this. Give me a shout if you've got any questions. Um, I'm confident and able to do that. But straight away, the engagement I had with the, the staff that I was managing was fantastic. You know, going out on visits together because I can't drive was, was great, but also gave people permission to say, actually, if those guys are going out together, I'm a bit unsure about this. I'm a bit anxious about this. Can I go out with someone as well? And I think it just one example breaks down barriers. One bit of good practice encourages more good practice. And so I would just encourage anyone who's listening to this to to take that leap of faith. And and you are vulnerable when you do it. You are putting yourself out there, but often you get a great response and encourage more people to have that same great response. And you start to promote a positive cycle of change. Thank you for that, Richard. Martin, back to you. I also think. Uh... Build on that. Uh, if someone has had a good experience, get them to act as a champion for that, because they can they can then you know let the other people in the organisation know this has worked for me. This is what I did. This is the benefits for me, and that way you encourage people to actually let people know, come out of it. So we again go back to my stigma point. That breaks it down. Well, if they can do that, if they got that, that worked for me, and then people are more like to say that, and that helps move it all forward, which is what we want. And we and we all collectively learn from that and improve. Thanks, Martin. And anybody else got anything else they want to say on that? Are we all, all good? Perfect. All right. Well, I think that kind of rounds up all the questions. Um, it's been really short and sweet, um, but I hope you've all kind of enjoyed the podcast. Thank you all again for your time um, this evening. And, you know, hopefully thanks to everybody that's going to listen. <laughs>